The following program contains material that may be disturbing. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome to Court on the Macabre. I'm Katie Adkins. I'm Kelly Reed. And we're going to talk about cults again because we yeah. like that topic a lot. And <laughs> it's been yeah. uh, a while since we talked about it, so I feel like it's due for a part two. Mostly because I just wanted to hear you explain everything about Charles Manson and how he's not actually a serial killer like a lot of people believe him to be. I, for one, though, found some really weird, interesting stuff about the Celestial Seasonings tea brand. Yeah, so I don't know if we just want to, like, jump right on in or... (laughs) I don't know, I feel like normally... um, I ask you if you've known a cult in real life, and you tell me no. <laughs> no, I mean, unless you count Jared Leto and whatever the hell is going on there. I don't know what it is, but I hear that something's going on with Jared Leto and he has a cult. Jared Leto's cult is really weird. And the crazy part about it is his cult members, like, know they're in a cult. Like, they call themselves a cult. Like, they use the word, like, they know. That's what Does it, it is. Does it a cult if they acknowledge it as a cult? Well, no. They say a cult means a family that's, like, connected spiritually. Like, they have their own definition oh, okay. of what yeah, a cult is. Yeah, like, cult language. Cults are so in right now. How weird would it be that your cult leader played, like, a shitty version of the Joker? Like, that doesn't even feel like a decent... If I was in, a, if I was in that cult, like, beforehand, I would have left. I would have left. I came here for my so-called life. I can't do this anymore. <laughs> Yeah. I used to be in love with that character as a kid who he played in my so-called life. I've never even seen that show. Oh, my God. Kelly, it is so of its time. It is so, like, I'm angsty in the mid-90s. Like, I have no purpose and don't know anything. Like, it's just, it is what it is. The Cult of Jared Leto. Jared Leto. Is that what it's called? The Cult of Jared Leto? Like, oh, my God. How, can, how self-absorbed can you be? His band also started the cult with him, so it's a 30 Seconds to Mars cult. And they bought, or they, like, own an island in Croatia. And the island is called uh, Mars Island. (laughs) And everyone wears white. You all have to wear white. Fans called themselves the Echelon. Oh, I'm sorry. They invited them to something called the Echelon. It was a retreat in Croatia where Leto, dressed in white robes, hosted hundreds of his devotees. Like, you had to be part of this cult in order to go for a three-day music festival, complete with yoga and movie screenings. And the band tweeted photos of Leto leading hundreds of people, also dressed in white, and it was captioned, yes, this is a cult, hashtag Mars Island. They went with the idea that they have a cult following, and therefore they're just going to make it a cult. Okay. Are there, like, tenets or something that they have to follow? They're all from, like, magazines, so I can't super say that, like, these are very solid sources. Yeah. (laughs) So far, what it sounds like is an island of groupies. I remember reading that they all pay to be at a certain level, and so if you pay for, like, the most expensive package or whatever, you get to, like, talk to Jared Leto for an hour or something like that or hang out with him in his yurt or whatever yurts are very culty yurts are so culty so they had a weekend event called camp mars in malibu that was at the cheapest two thousand dollars to go 
but everyone who went there says that they had just like a super great time. As far as everyone knows, there was no report of any crazy orgies or like super like anything upsetting or indecent or whatever. It's just a bunch of like weird ass crunchy granola yoga people following Jared Leto. <laughs> I just love friends. There's this one article written in April of last year, 2020, titled Jared Leto's cult is basically the new fire fest. <laughs> so it's like fire fest, but you know, better. But there's a promotional year. video. We learned that Ekalong is belief, hope, emotions, understanding, music, support, world unification, love, shouts. Communicate. Shout? It just says shouts, like the word shout with an S. I don't know. Communication, right. freedom, happiness, tears, dreams. It is the family is the last thing in the video. And it shows devoted fans with actual Ekalong tattoos. And members of the Ekalong also use the uniting hashtag, hashtag you wouldn't understand, which is a kind of motto that Jared started and uses himself. Like, Ekalong, you wouldn't understand. <laughs> It's also okay. used to fight back in against any naysayers. So when people are like, this is fucking stupid, they're like, you wouldn't understand. It's like, oh, it's like I know you are, but what am I? <laughs> <laughs> Let's see. Is Jared Leto's cult related to the fact that the actor Prophet didn't know that the world was in the middle of a pandemic until he returned from his 12-day retreat? <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. Wait, so people are just like, he goes on a 12-day retreat doesn't know what's going on and he comes back and people are like yes oh I, want, I want to live in your world that's oh 12 days without God. pandemic no last year on march tw- 16th he tr- he tweeted wow 12 days i began a silent meditation in the desert for 12 days motherfucker i don't believe you we were totally isolated no phone no communication etc we had no idea what was happening outside the facility that sounds like a cover-up for something where you have to publicly say why you've been gone for 12 fucking days you're like this is why i haven't said anything about covid <laughs> in case you thought i disappeared because i did something horrible with my cult <laughs> i was in the desert being quiet for 12 days <laughs> he added walked out yesterday into a very different world one that's been changed forever mind-blowing to say the least okay yeah we get it you're jared leto and somehow fame really fucking got to you um, i don't really know how because it's not like i mean 30 seconds to mars was big right everything yeah. else i don't know i was my so-called life pretty big it was at the time i never considered him really like an a-lister I know it's interesting because I kind of don't either, but he's been in so many famous movies, not usually as the main character. Well, to be fair, he was in um, uh, he was the main guy in Requiem for a Dream, which was just like. But that one, I don't consider that like an A-list movie by any means. I feel like that's that's like the kind of movie that you only find out about if one of your friends has seen it before and somehow convinces you that you need to watch it without giving you any background on what of it it's it's darren aronofsky so it's like artsy fartsy you wouldn't understand kind of like vibe that's what darren aronofsky fucking does like look at mother are you kidding me Oh, I do like Mother. Though. And like, oh. I, I liked Mother as well, but like the the way he answers the press's questions about the movie is so, <laughs> oh, you're just too poor to understand. Unless your brain operates on a higher tier like mine. If you believe that's what it is, that's what it is. It's just like, okay, yeah. dude. Yeah, well, Dana Aronofsky's made good movies, but what I'm saying is like the kind of 
persona that comes with people who are kind of like obsessed with those movies are usually like oh, I'm too intelligent to speak yeah, with the comic like, folk the bow kind of thing yeah that's kind of how I've always viewed his films not because of it's because of the fan base honestly of those movies like I think it's also because we went to film school and that's just the people you meet who are like, Requiem for Dreams, one of my favorite movies. And I'm like, because you're fucked up, and it probably shouldn't be. <laughs> and somebody I knew who said that was literally just saying it to get a rise out of somebody. Oh, yeah. Jared Leto, years ago, said that you know his cult, quotations, was a joke response to journalists saying, you have such a cult following. And I guess he decided to take it to the next fucking step. He's like, cult following? Hold my beer. <laughs> but yeah, they're saying in all seriousness, his uh, cult may actually just be a Firefest-like marketing tool for his band, Three Seconds to Mars. But there's just a lot of there's just a lot of creepy pictures of him just looking like a sunglasses Jesus in Croatia with a bunch of white people who look like they're all posing for a family photo on a beach in the 2000s. Why did everyone do that in 2005? Speaking um, of white things, I've been watching a lot of the OC lately. Oh my God. <laughs> yeah, how's that treating you? Um, I mean, it's okay. I've been watching a lot of things this week. We just watched a documentary on the Cecil Hotel. Yes, my mom told me about that. Yeah, I was wondering if you'd seen it yet. I hadn't yet, but didn't we bring up the Cecil Hotel in our hotels episode? I I thought that was like, that was the hotels episode. Wasn't it? Yeah. There was like, American Horror Story. What hotel was that based in? Because I thought it was the Cecil Hotel. No, that hotel was based off of H.H. Holmes' uh, murder hotel. Because it was like, it had all the dead ends and like random stairs that go to nowhere and stuff but it was all yeah, built on I, purpose. Yeah, my brain combined those two things. And we're like, oh, yeah. they're the same. Because like the way that they talked about Cecil Hotel, it's basically like a, a horror house, except all the horror that's happened there is less paranormal and more just fucked up. I mean, usually American Horror Story will base their seasons off of multiple things. So mm-hmm. maybe the Cecil Hotel is also kind of thrown in there with that. Like, oh, they I just, they, they combine the ideas of, like, multiple creepy hotels. I'm still disappointed that the clown hotel we brought up in that episode does not have clown-themed rooms, only a clown-themed lobby, and that's just false advertising. Yeah. Like, I just... Like, if you're going to go for a theme like that, you really have to stick with it, and right? the fact that you admit, I just can't respect it. <laughs> I, yeah, I can't respect the fact that your clown hotel does not have clown-themed rooms. Like, that's just... I can't, I can't do that. I can't go there. I don't even care that it's next to a graveyard. Like, it's just not worth it. Unless, unless the pillows have clown faces on them, I don't want it. (laughs) (laughs) I have very specific requirements. (laughs) So I'm sure we're all familiar with Sleepy Time Tea by Celestial Seasonings. If you don't drink tea, I'm sure you've at least recognized, like, the bear sitting and sleeping in the little nightcap and hat. The Celestial Seasonings art in general tend to look like like a medieval hippie having some sort of weird trip as like how I like to describe the artwork on the celestial seasoning boxes a a medieval hippie tripping on acid or something oh okay I just wanted to make sure I caught that (laughs) I'm just like well one of one of the boxes I will never understand is of a lady, it's like a princess, like hanging out with a dragon. The tea is supposed to like soothe you, so it's like taming the dragon. I think 
was the idea. I forgot the name of the flavor. Tension Tamer. Yeah, Tension Tamer is the name of that tea. And it's just like this lady. But some of it just has weird, like overly colorful backgrounds. Like there's one of um, like true blueberry is of a bear whitewater rafting in blueberries down a river. Like they just have no rhyme or reason with their artwork. There's another one called Bengal Spice and it's of like a tiger like hanging out in a field. There's a lady in the background and he's just like, look at all my spices. Like here's trays of spices. Like we're chilling. There's just so many. Even as a kid, I was like, this artwork is weird. They're ginger spices of two terrifying gingerbread men uh, ice skating together. (laughs) Okay, so you're probably wondering why the fuck am I bringing up tea? So on (laughs) an episode about cults. I was wondering that, yes. To give... Some history, I guess, about celestial seasonings um, is that the company was founded in 1969 by several Colorado hikers who discovered that the Rocky Mountains were full of aromatic herbs that made delicious teas. And they named it Celestial Seasoning, supposedly after one of the co-founders, like, flower name, like their hippie name, because they're just stoned, I'm assuming stoned, Colorado hikers in 1969. <laughs> Um, But the group was led by a guy named Mo Siegel, who basically went on to be the face of the company. So he's a pretty big deal. And he already, before they founded the company, was a well-known herbalist in Boulder at the time, um, selling, he had like a famed 36 herb tea or something to health food stores, health food stores, and hand-sewn in little muslin bags because, you know, the environment, man. I'm I'm not hating on people for doing that. I'm completely on board. I just think it's funny because it, it's 1969. I can just, I'm just imagining like a dude in like flip flops, like walking into a grocery store with like hand sewn bags and being like, hey man, you want to sell my teas? I wish um, I worked at that grocery store. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, in 1972 is when shit really started popping off for celestial seasonings because that is when Mo Siegel created Sleepy Time Tea, the one with the bear with the hat that I just. Uh, showed you lovely people. It's a blend of chamomile, spearmint, other herbs. No, that's not important. Um, and so basically that tea kind of turned their company into basically an overnight success. Like it was just so popular. Everyone needed the sleepy time tea. And that is just what the official history that Celestial Seasonings wants the public to know. However, Megan Giller has decided uh, to come forward with the bizarre histories, hidden history involved in celestial seasonings and Mo Siegel. Giller came forward. She said that Mo Siegel, which he has since then come forward and been like, yes, this is something I'm a part of and like openly admitted to a lot of stuff, which we'll get to those quotes later, that he was an avid believer in a new age Bible called the, the Urantia book, Urantia book, which was first published in 1955. And it's this little self-called Bible, which was inspired by the Seventh-day Adventist movement, except that it was supposedly written uh, to an unknown man who was possessed and put into a trance by aliens. So this book, this new age Bible, was written by aliens through a human vessel. Okay. okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah, man. So Siegel, the same year he founded um, 
Celestial Seasonings is the same year he found this book that was written in 1955 and became obsessed with it and was like, this is my religion, this is my life, this is what I follow. Oh, boy. (laughs) They think, people think it was written by William Sadler, who was a turn-of-the-century psychiatrist who also uh, published books about eugenics and a deeply rooted racist philosophy. So not fun. This little religion is rooted in racism. Lovely. Mm-hmm. So the central idea of this particular, uh, like, cult, religion, whatever, is it revolves around the idea that there are many different sons of God who live on many different planets in a galaxy that consists of billions of worlds. I don't know if, if any of you guys listening are familiar with Warhammer's 40K, but that's the same <laughs> plot. <laughs> According to their belief system, our world is just one of billions, and it's called Urantia, and in 40K, it's called Terra. Oh, my God. So uh, while this seems, you know, just kind of cute and whatever, there's some call to attention about the thoughts kind of buried deep in the book um, that kind of centered around eugenics, which is not not a great topic to really have in there. I don't really know much about eugenics, if I'm being honest. Eugenics is like the, um, it turns out you want to mate white people with white people and mate black people with black people so you don't have mix-ups. So study of how to arrange reproduction within a human population to increase the occurrence of heritable characters regarded as desirable. So usually racist people like this and will want to segregate reproduction because they'll believe that, I guess, their race is the desired inheritable traits right developed largely by sir francis galton as a method of improving the human race eugenics was increasingly was increasingly discredited as unscientific and racially biased during the 20th century especially after the adoption of its doctrines by the nazis in order to justify their treatments of jews disabled people and other minority groups so they would be like oh well, well we're killing these people because they just don't have desirable traits for mating so here's how the eugenics come into play with this uh, Urantia religion. So according to this little Bible, half a million years ago, there were six colored races that existed on our planet. Red, orange, yellow, green, blue, and indigo. And there was racial superiority order with the indigo race at the bottom. It also oddly states that the strains of giantism giantism can appear in green and orange people and that's just like a weird side thing however the upshot of all this is that on every planet in every universe uh fair-skinned blue-eyed aliens named adam and eve come to upstep the natives meaning that they eliminate the inferior stocks and purify the planet yeah (laughs) Hmm. So Adam and Eve shut up and killed a bunch of people. This is a very bizarre book. Yeah. Also similar to Warhammer 40K. (laughs) 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 But that's just about, there's just a bunch of aliens and chaos, demons and gods and whatever. That's a whole separate thing. Honestly, I prefer it. (laughs) Oh my God. I read this twice today and I'm reading it for the third time today and I'm like, I still can't fucking believe this. After this kind of became exposed, because uh, he didn't provide a comment to Giller when she came out, you know, saying this is this is what he do, 
Um, she relied on a piece he co-wrote called The 20 Most Asked Questions, in which he wrote, Belonging to any particular race provides no spiritual advantage or disadvantage. All persons are equal in the sight of God. But at the present time, mankind loses about as much progress as it makes by ignoring eugenics. He then came out and wrote in 2006 uh, about when he found the Urantia book. Um, He said, I was not concerned about who had written it or how it had been written because it was so powerful. And I'm just like, what the fuck? Okay. (laughs) Um, Oh, boy. And then later he admitted that the book's ideas were, and I quote, were the inspiration for the uplifting quotes we print on the side of our tea boxes and on our tea bags. Teabag tags. Uh, what are the inspirational quotes? This is an updated box, so it didn't have it on there because he stepped down as head of the company in 2002. Oh, that's, so, that sounds like it's for the best. <laughs> yeah. And what I did think is funny is I did find an inspirational quote on this one. Where is it? Oh, my God. It's somewhere on here. Oh, here it is. Uh, Happiness lies first of all in health, which is a... Uh, George William Curtis, which is definitely a white man from the 1800s, but he did speak in favor of African-American equality and civil rights. Old white man quotes still over here, at least they're not from men who write books about aliens and eugenics. I am very curious about those, though. So he left the company in 2002, but he remained into Urantia to this day. He holds the title of president of the Urantia Foundation. Uh, we about a new religion today. <laughs> yep. If you want, I can look more into the Urantia book, but I didn't because I was like, I know you have so much. Oh my god, I found a PDF file for it. Did you really? You Is it like just, a book? You can just download the Urantia papers. Holy wow. shit. Oh my god. They really want to convert people. They're just like, here it is for free. Have at it. But I just had to share this book wild nonsense about celestial seasonings tea, which is a tea I've been drinking my whole life. Let's get get to it. Let's hear about this crazy man. Manson. So, yeah, basically, I mean, you know this already, but just for everybody who's listening, basically why I'm doing this is because, I mean, I talked about – Rosemary's Baby and like the haunted film set and how that was related to Manson. I guess I just kind of assumed that most people know a like that he's not a serial killer. And then when you posted a meme on my page about how he's not a serial killer and people were confused, I was like, oh, people don't know this. Which to be fair, like I didn't know that much about it before I listened to that podcast. The podcast is like seven or ten episodes long so there's no way that I'm going to be able to cover all of this (laughs) in like an episode but I do want to at least sum up what the fuck Manson is and how this shit just went crazy and so wrong so Manson was born 1934 uh, to a 16 year old sex worker who is also an alcoholic it's kind of her story is pretty sad because His biological father, she met in her line of work, and he claimed, or his nickname was Colonel, and so people just kind of assumed that he was a colonel in the army, or at least 
this girl Kathleen did. She was like, oh, he's an army colonel. And so then she comes to him and tells him that she's pregnant. And he's like, oh, I have to leave um, for army business. You know, I'm, I got to go to war. So he just leaves and abandons her, basically. She gets married. So it was before Manson was born in 1934. She gets married to William Manson. And William kind of kind of takes care of Charles. Like he's um he does like petty crime and shit pretty regularly. His mom, Kathleen, goes off to uh drink with her brother. And so Charles Manson is left by himself for the most part, because his dad's out robbing shit and his mom's getting drunk with her brother. And they end up getting divorced. No shit. Yeah, <laughs> I would have guessed. Oh, yeah. um, but we're going to allege no, uh, gross neglect of duty by his mom. Yeah. So, no kidding. So he gets taken to his aunt's place while Kathleen and her brother, they're sent to jail, which is why he ends up there. Like his parents get a divorce. And then shortly after, his mom and his uncle are both sent to jail for assault and robbery. Charles is bouncing around more and more. At first, he's at his aunt's, then his aunt can't take care of him anymore. Um, he ends up at a school for male delinquents that's run by Catholic priests. Um, it was called Gabalt, and it was a strict school where punishment for even like tiniest things um, you could be beaten with a wooden paddle or a leather strap. Obviously, Mason, Manson, Mason, Manson runs away. He starts sleeping in the woods, under bridges, just anywhere he can find shelter. And as you can probably guess, he starts getting into trouble, like, at a very early age, because he's basically just on his own. So he's, you know, stealing food, like, stealing money. He actually stayed at the Cecil Hotel. Oh. <laughs> Funny enough. Which is why I brought that up earlier. Um, like, he, I think one of his first robberies was he stole from a grocery store. He stole, like, 100 bucks, and then he used that to stay at the Cecil Hotel for a few nights. But, yeah, he starts with petty theft. Um, he tries to light his school on fire at one point. And that's like his starting point. Then, of course, he gets into like heavier and heavier things. Like he's caught raping a boy at knife point. Like not a good dude. He was caught raping a boy at knife point? Yeah. Jesus Christ, this is what, the 70s? Uh, this is the 60s. Before that. Yeah. I mean, he's he's very young. I think this is like the 50s like late 50s at this point i clump all those time periods together when it comes to crime because fucking pedophiles man yeah i mean so he's born in 1934 and it's just a shit show from start to finish basically because you know his family's not there he basically grows up in like delinquent camps and he's older than i thought he was so during his first imprisonment manson meets a few pimps in jail and he thinks they are just so interesting they teach him how to meet and manipulate women into sex work that's just their line of work and so they teach him like oh that you like put them real down low you know convince them they're worth nothing and then that then you build them up and convince them to do work for you is basically what they teach him Jesus. And, he and he thinks that's just so great he's like that's the life for me you know i'm gonna take <laughs> what i learned in prison and really apply it to my life oh my um, so it's really just there's no good trajectory here at all so far once he gets out he starts pimping girls that he meets including a 16 year old girl who runs away with him and then his, this poor girl's family is sending money to him like well to her for her well-being that she's like giving to him 
and he i mean like there's multiple girls involved in this he's just like they think he's just the greatest um because he's just really charismatic um he is illiterate but has a high iq he just knows how to talk to people really especially young girls now that he's learned from pimps second time he goes to jail which isn't even for pimping um it's for forging a u.s treasury check which is a federal crime but while he's in prison he starts to uh read how to make friends okay you just said he was illiterate yeah okay so i guess he He learned learned okay you want to know who also was illiterate who jared leto's character in my so-called life jordan catalano Full circle. Full circle, circle, guys. He had a learning disability. I thought teenage Jared Leto was just the hottest thing. It was probably the swoopy 90s hair. Mm-hmm. The fact that he could play guitar and the fact that he couldn't read. Oh, no. Katie. He was illiterate. Manson also learns how to play guitar while he's in prison. Oh, no. <laughs> it's all come together. They're actually the same person. Oh, my God. <laughs> okay, so... Like I said, second time he goes to jail, he teaches himself to, well, kind of teaches himself how to read. I think he gets help from somebody in prison. Anyway, he learns his, he reads his favorite book, How to Make Friends and Influence People, which is a book from forever ago, but like people still love it to this day. It's still like one of the best selling books, I guess, on, um, on the subject. I mean, that book in the wrong hands, taken the wrong way, is just... I mean, it's dangerous, I guess, because um, anyway, so he reads that and he learns to play guitar also while he's in there from like another inmate. It's like a um, like a gang leader who I guess he gets in with. Oh my God. <laughs> and he's like, oh, I teach you how to play guitar. So they like kind of bond over that. By the time of his release day of um, March 21st in 1967, he has spent more than half of his 32 years in prisons and other institutions. He's basically grown up in institutions. This is why I'm convinced charisma is a learned skill and not one that someone is inherently like born with. I just, when people are like, oh, you're just naturally charismatic. Like I believe that person worked really hard at it. I think for some people it's easier than others. Like, I mean. Fair. People talked about him his whole life as being really charismatic. It's just it got but worse it, and worse. And it could be argued that cult leaders are just giant con artists. <laughs> because of the pandemic, we haven't filmed the rest of it. But our our Patreon Drunk and Dreadful video that I'm trying so hard to desperately get out to you guys eventually is on basically a woman in the 30s who had a cult. Hunter tells a story who was just an enormous fucking con artist. Like, at her core, she was a con artist before she started the cult. And it's a fantastic story. Back to Manson. Okay, so after being discharged from prison in 1967, um, Manson just starts utilizing everything that he's learned from all of his pimps and his favorite book and starts to be like, starts attracting followers. Um, it was mostly young women from around California. It starts in San Francisco. But the group grows and grows and grows till it's about 100 members. They end up going to the, I guess, I guess now it's known as like the Manson Family Ranch. It belonged to other people. But Manson shows up and the guy who owned it, he basically just bribes him with the women in his cult. He's like, yeah, we're all about free love. So you can sleep with any of these girls that you want in exchange for letting us stay on your ranch is basically what happened. And the guy was like, yeah, cool, whatever. 
the workers who worked at the ranch were not on board with this at all. They thought it was completely uncool, but Manson basically manipulated the owner into letting him stay there so they didn't really get to say anything about it. Um, And if they did, they were threatened by the Manson family members. So as the cult grows, people started to believe that he's some sort of prophet. He would feed them LSD before he spoke. I mean, it's it's like brainwashing is basically what he did. He would give them drugs and then talk about his ideas. Yeah, brainwash. <laughs> um, and one of his favorite ideas was that the Beatles album, the White Album, was all about the doomsday that was to come. That there was a race war coming. Um, doomsday was nigh and they had to prepare for it. Um, they had like an underground bunker at one point. Um, that they had to disappear to and stuff. But he also preaches that, like, this is going to be a revolution. He convinces them it's going to be violent. They have to prepare themselves for that. Like, the closer family members are the ones that he convinces to, like, intimidate and beat people within the family that don't understand or don't agree with him or start to venture off. Wait, so the Manson family used to be a doomsday cult? Yeah. Jesus, I did not know that. Yeah, no, he was, he interpreted Helter Skelter from the White Album of the Beatles. He interpreted that the song was uh, something to do with the Four Horsemen of the Apocalypse. Oh my God. The whole album, which everybody says is like super trippy. He is convinced that the whole album is filled with subliminal messages, um, especially Blackbird. There's another song called Piggies. Revolution 9. Yeah. That was another one. And then Helter Skelter was like, Helter Skelter was the one where he was like convinced that it was all about, you know, the four horsemen of the apocalypse, um, that it was coming, that there was a big race war that was going to happen, you know. As word of the amount of young women and drugs at this ranch um, starts to spread, he's actually able to meet a few famous people. And something that I haven't spoken of yet, but I did mentioned earlier that he played guitar in prison he started becoming obsessed with the idea um, while he was in prison of being famous he wanted to become a famous band member he wanted to be just worshipped basically and he would write his own music that wasn't very good (laughs) but of course you know the people in his cult would be like oh wow it's amazing you know um so anyway Some famous people show up. Dennis Wilson of the Beach Boys uh, allowed Manson and several of his uh, family members to stay at his house after picking up two of the women that were in the family. They were, like, hitchhiking. And so... Oh, wait. uh, When you say picking up, you don't mean that uh, the Beach Boy guy, like, hooked up with two of the girls. You mean, like, they picked up two girls hitchhiking? I kind of mean both. Okay. Okay. Dennis Wilson picks up two of the girls, two of these girls from the family who had been hitchhiking. Oh, who had been hitchhiking. All about Manson and about like the ranch and the drugs and the women and the free love and whatever. And they're like, oh, cool. He sounds dope. Yeah, he can come over. So Manson starts hanging out with one of the Beach Boys. And it's through that association that he gets the opportunity to audition for Terry Melcher, who's the son of Doris Day. And he's a producer of the of the Beach Boys. And he was living at 150 Cielo Drive at the time. So 
Melcher wasn't interested in signing a consent and uh, signing a contract with Manson. I like he agreed to it because Dennis Wilson was like, "Hey, he gives me drugs and girls, and so I just kind of like, would you do me a solid and just listen you know, to play him along with this for a while while I have my fun?" And so Melcher's just like, "Yeah, sure." <sighs> Manson's music wasn't that great. And also he actually went into the studio to record at one point. He's actually like on the B side of of a Beach Boys album uh, for like one song. But he did go in and record. And while he was in the studio, he just would have these outbursts. Um, He was really hard to work with. He would just get violent and aggressive with everybody. But he kept showing up at Terry Melcher's house even after he had been like, because Terry Melcher didn't straight up say, no, I'm not going to sign you. It was basically like he went along with it for that one guy. The Beach Boy's yeah. sake. Yeah, for the Beach Boy's sake. He was just like, yeah, maybe, 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 you know. And so Manson would just keep showing up and keep showing up and keep showing up oh, until God. Terry Melcher eventually moves away. And who moves in is Roman Polanski and his wife, Sharon Tate. Sharon Tate. I'm going to interrupt just because I'm still mad that I somehow do not have the audio of the Rosemary's Baby episode. Yeah, that's that's what I was just about to mention, too. (laughs) I know. So for those of you listening who, I guess, didn't catch our previous stream, which is the majority... Have you? We did a cursed movie sets episode. Talked about Poltergeist. Kelly talked about... Rosemary's Baby, and that's mm-hmm. how we had talked about Charles Manson in a previous episode, but it never got really produced, so that audio is lost, so we're going to do that again now. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so Rosemary's uh, Roman Polanski is super famous for producing or directing um, Rosemary's Baby, which has its own fucking story to it. I mean, I can pull up the info on it if you want. I still have it saved. The book is cursed. The, <laughs> the movie's cursed. cursed. Everything's movie cursed. Basically, anybody who was associated with this fucking story, um, whether it be the book or the movie especially, um, they ended up dead or hospitalized or something. Like, nothing good came of this. There was divorce. There was death. There was just so much going on with this movie and but anyway Roman Polanski gets so much fame from it because it's a huge success you know and he moves with his girlfriend Sharon to from um oh god where was he someplace in Europe Roman Polanski grew up in Europe um and he was there with Sharon Tate like a French Polish dude anyway um he meets Sharon Tate Sharon Tate um was dating this hairdresser at the time who was completely just head over heels in love with her. She's just this beautiful, vivacious, charismatic, bubbly woman. She's stunning. um, And she wants to be an actress so bad. But she's dating this guy. He's a hairdresser. He's wonderful to her. He's completely in love with her. But then Sharon meets Roman Polanski. This is a very short version of what happened. There's so much more. (laughs) But basically, she meets Roman Polanski and just completely falls for him. Um, Plus, he has these connections that, you know, she really wants to be a part of. Because the thing that she's most well known for is Valley of the Dolls, which is a peculiar film. But she was um, super excited to be in it. 
it was like a major hit for her even though it was just like a b movie at best Um, it's not it's not like a gold digger matchup either like she's completely in love with room and it just happens to be that she meets him within her line of work just adores him so they ended up getting married and they move to 150 cielo drive they move into terry melcher's old place roman is off doing his own shit he meets actresses all the time he's like having shady hookups um but in the meantime you know his wife sharon is at home pregnant and she's still hanging out with her old boyfriend they all just became kind of best friends yeah because jay sebring he was like i can't not be a part of sharon's life like i'll sit back and be a friend if that's what it takes but i'm I'm not leaving her, you know. I I hate that mentality. It's so creepy to me. Really? Where it's like, if I can't have her, I'll be her friend. Yeah. Maybe it's because I've had experiences where guys tried to do that, and I was like, I hate this experience. (laughs) I think it's sweet if, you know, there's no ulterior motive, which – for him, there wasn't any. It wasn't I mean, like, that we know of, but yeah. it's fine. Well, I mean, it's just like from all reports, everything that's known about it, it was basically just like he knew that she was in love with somebody else and he accepted it. He just, you know, still wanted to be there for her. Sure. If that worked for them, good for them. Yeah. And I mean, he's like buddies with Polanski and then Polanski just, like, leaves them together on his trips constantly. Really um, hoped he had someone else to be in love with. <laughs> but, if it's, <laughs> but it's very possible that he and Sharon were still hooking up if Roman Polanski was doing what he was doing. I, there's always a possibility, but I, with as much as we do know about everyone's personal lives in this story, and that there's no mention of them ever having any kind of hookup outside of their friendly ones regard and they were like very openly like hang out at parties with other people and stuff i don't know i mean obviously it's possible but anyway charles manson is not aware of the fact that terry melcher has moved away he thinks that terry melcher's still there he sends people over there to like threaten melcher but when they get there melcher's not there and it's sharon tate and they're, she's just like, oh, no, he doesn't live here anymore. Sorry. But Manson doesn't care that his target isn't there anymore. He just, I guess he's just pissed and fucking crazy. And so he's just like, when they come back and they deliver this message to him, he's just like, I'm going to need you, like, group of five people to go to this house, go to 150 Cielo Drive, and kill everyone there as gruesomely as you can. Wait, so he knew the producer didn't live there anymore? Yeah, he knew. And he's pissed about it. So since he can no longer contact Terry Melcher, it's basically just like an act of violence now. His uh, main like pet or main dude, I guess, Charles Tex Watson, he drives to the estate with um, Susan Atkins, Patricia Krenwinkel. I'm sorry, Susan who? Susan Atkins. Okay, good. Not bad. Cool, cool. So let me make sure. (laughs) I hate sharing last name with shitty people. Not that I have anyone in mind. It's just right as of right now, I share last names with like a couple country singers. And so far, that's it. And maybe I'd like to keep it that way. (laughs) Yeah, so far, you're safe. So it's Watson, Susan Atkins, Patricia Krenwinkel, and Linda Cassabian. Cassabian. Um, when they arrive on the property after midnight, they encounter a car driven by Stephen Parent. 
who is an 18 year old who had been visiting the estate's caretaker and um at the guest house it was like one of his family members he was there just like visiting his family but he's unfortunate enough to come past this car on the way out tex shoots him to death oh baby yeah or 18 year old um, who's just caught in the crossfire then he adkins and krenwinkel break into the main house and Cassabian, she sees this kid get shot and she's basically like i didn't sign up for this like i i didn't know i thought we were like just scaring them i didn't know that this was going to be a thing i don't want to be a part of it and so she's left in the car to be a lookout when they break into the house there are four people in the home um it's jay sebring sharon tate's old boyfriend sharon tate frykowski who is the boyfriend to one of the folger heiresses oh Um, wow yeah big name which a lot of people called it like the folger murder for a while because she was like a big name at the time Um, she was more famous than sharon tate was (laughs) exactly yeah folger's there with her boyfriend and then it's sharon tate and her old boyfriend um Wow. Jay Sebring and uh, Sharon were linked by ropes tied around their necks. Sebring tries to convince them not to hurt Sharon because she's pregnant with Roman Polanski's baby. And he's just like, take me instead. Just let her go. Please let her go. Um, And he is shot and stabbed to death for trying to defend her. Well, he was going to be shot and stabbed regardless, it sounds like. Yeah, yeah, I'm sure. But he's, he's just done in first because of it. Frykowski and Folger managed to free themselves and flee the house, but both of them were chased down and killed by two of the other family members. Finally, Adkins fatally stabs Tate in the stomach. It's a dick move. She's pregnant, and they yeah, straight up Game of Thrones horror show. Dick, yeah, move, Um, my guy. And then as they're leaving, they use Tate's blood to write the word "pig" on the front door as like a reference to piggies. From the white album of the beatles i have to listen oh. to that song i haven't i've never i've never actually listened to the only al- album of the beatles i've listened to in full is one but all the others i've listened in like a greatest hits kind of situation i i feel like i've only i mean obviously i watched across the world and i listened to everything that was on there uh same because i was like what 14 when it came out yeah, obviously was i was fantastic. obsessed <laughs> Other than that, I think I always associated the White Album with something bad. Like, I I was too young to know what it was, but I knew that it was associated with something bad. So the White Album is a 30-song album? Yeah. Big one. Yeah, I was reading in the Rolling Stone. They did, like, a whole article on, like, how Helter Skelter and the White Album influenced Manson. And the Beatles were just like... We hate this. Like, please don't associate us with this fucking crazy person. But, like, the White Album, it kind of seems like it got really bad rep after that. So, Frykowski had been stabbed more than 50 times and shot twice. And then, this is one that I did. I don't know too much about. It's just something I found while I was researching. Um, it's not something that I, I remember hearing in the podcast. I could have just blanked on that part but the following night after the Sharon Tate murders Manson takes the same people he takes them in and tells them to search for more people to murder 
basically. Because he knows that these people are down to murder at this point. He's just like, okay, yeah, we're doing this. Cool. How about them? Go kill them, you know? And so he selects (laughs) this, um, the Los Angeles home of a grocery store executive and his wife. His name's Lino LaBianca and his wife, Rosemary. Oh my God, Rosemary, get the fuck out of here. It's awful. It's fucking terrible. And I, I think we mentioned it already, but Polanski was gone during the time of these murders. Like he was in England shooting a different movie. And so he had no idea until, you know, he's contacted about it. So Manson sends them over to Leno and his wife, Rosemary's house. Manson ties up the couple and robs them and then he leaves them. But the other family members remained and acting on orders from Manson stabs the couple to death. And then again, leaves more Beatles words written on blood, written in blood on the walls. This time it was Helter Skelter? It doesn't say what it was this time. Because I know that they did write Helter Skelter yeah. on the walls. Oh, it was at the Sharon Tate house. I'm sorry, did I somehow miss that detail? No, they did write pig. They wrote, um, they wrote pig, but I remember, okay, so the only reason why I remember no, probably this. probably Helter Skelter since they didn't mention it. I, when I went to the Museum of Death, there was a whole, um, in the one in L.A., there was a whole Charles Manson like corner um, mm-hmm. that had a TV playing loop of the media of him and stuff. And there was pictures of Helter Skelter being written on walls. Okay, so, so it was that's, probably the second house then. I didn't know they wrote Pig, but yeah. I knew they wrote Helter Skelter because I know a lot of people associate that phrase with Charles Manson. Yeah, they used Pig a lot. Piggies was the song on the White Album. And I think it was supposed to be like... The upper class. I've um, got to listen to that. I've I never fully listened to the White Album. Plus, his whole thing was also subliminal messages. Like, there were points where he would play it backwards and, like, was convinced they were saying something while it was played in reverse. Like, so when these murders happen in 1969, the investigators are just, they can't find a connection between the two murder scenes other than, like, the writing on the wall. But to de- detectives were convinced there was a drug transaction that was the trigger for the Tate murders. Like, they were just like, I don't get it, you know? I mean, it um, doesn't make sense because why would they think, oh, obviously a man said, hey, go into this house and murder everyone senselessly. Yeah, because they, they live in the house of a man that I used to have business with. In October of 1969, the members of the Manson cult were arrested at the ranch for stealing vehicles and burning equipment. So they're not arrested for the murders. They're arrested for other shit. But one of those arrested implicated Atkins um, in one of the murders. And Atkins, while he's in jail, just starts telling people, like telling his cellmates that he that he performed the Tate murders. He was like, oh, yeah, I did it. Like, he's just boasting about it while he's in his fucking jail cell. Oh, my God. Um, yeah. <laughs> so by the year's end, all the killers have been arrested. The trial combined... The Tate and LaBianca murders. Um, it began in June 1970 with Cassabian, who had been, um, she'd been granted immunity. She was the one who sat in the car and she was just the witness since she didn't participate in any of it and she just saw it all. She's just like, fuck yeah, I'll tell you everything. It's fucked up. <laughs> I um, feel like today she would not have been granted immunity. Oh, no. No, no. They would have been like, you don't get, you get a few years in prison because you didn't 
leave them and immediately come to the police. Yeah, or call them immediately after. Like, they didn't yeah. find out until much later. Right. Um, but she was the, the prosecution's main witness. So despite frequent interruptions and disruptions, Manson, Atkins, and everybody who was involved in the murders, they're all found guilty in January 1971. I appreciate your attempts to make Atkins sound different. Oh, I'm doing it on purpose. <laughs> I know. Oh, I know. I know you are. <laughs> yeah, so Manson wasn't, uh, he wasn't arrested for the murders, but he's arrested for inciting them, basically, because everybody's just like, yeah, I did it because he told me to. <laughs> so they're both, or everybody's found guilty in 1971. They're tried and convicted later that year. Everybody received the death penalty, but the sentences were commuted to life in prison um, after California abolished the capital punishment in 1972. They did become eligible for parole, but they were repeatedly denied. Thank goodness. Um, and then Manson actually recently died, which is why I listened to this podcast in the first place, because I realized as he died that I didn't really know too much about him. He died in 2017. So not that long ago is when he died. And he died in prison where he had spent the majority of his life anyway. And that is the story of Charles Manson and why he's not technically a serial killer. He's just a crazy psychopath with power over other people in his cult. Yeah, I was I was trying to explain it to Ben because I was like, yeah, Kelly tonight is going to talk about Charles Manson, how he's like not a murderer, like not technically a murderer. Like he, And he was like, I don't understand. <laughs> and I was like, well, he never personally murdered somebody. He just influenced people to do it. And he and he was like, I see that as the same thing. And I'm like, I get you. But like, think of it as he is a murderer in the sense that I could hire a hitman to kill somebody. Yeah. Like, I personally didn't like, do the murder, but I like paid someone to commit the murder. And I think today they try that as you murdering them. Because, oh, yeah. And I mean, they did with Manson, too, which, which is, is good. Died. But yeah. I had to explain. I was like, no, this guy was just so good at convincing people to murder that they had to just put him in prison forever. Yeah. <laughs> so he couldn't he continue just, to convince people to murder other people. He was a brainwashing machine and he was fucking crazy. Like, I mean, if you listen to some of the quotes that he gives, he's still like convinced that the White Album is all about the apocalypse um, and all this shit. So. Yeah, because the Beatles, like, what, went to, like, India or something, tripped on a bunch of drugs and just had, like, some crazy-ass epiphanies about the end of the world? Probably, I like, don't think so. Probably did ayahuasca, and then they were just like, oh, shit, we're going to sing all kinds of crazy stuff. No limits. Like, but, yeah. Yeah, no, but, I mean, I agree with Ben. I mean, he's definitely, I would say he's a killer. He's responsible for the murders, but he didn't. He, he didn't murder people himself. I'm convinced that if he couldn't convince them to murder them, he would have done it. But we don't I know. Don't, I mean, know. He, he might have executed it badly, but I think I don't part know. of the kick was he did it because he liked having control over people. True. I want to know in this podcast that you listen to, do they go over all of the like crazy women who were like in love with him and like wasn't yeah. there a woman who like maybe I'm getting this confused with um Ted Bundy but wasn't there a woman who like had his baby or something within the last 10 years there was a few there was a few people that had his baby you are I think you're thinking of Ted Bundy 
I am thinking of Ted Bundy, I think. But, like, there were still girls, though, and they, for some reason, were allowed to, like, did they get married? Like, how were they able to have meetings like that? He was married to a few people. Like, before his first imprisonment, he was married to somebody. He had a child with them. uh, But she got a divorce while he was in prison. Okay, Uh, but I'm talking about... I'm talking about after the Sharon Tate murders. Murder. Oh, after the Sharon Tate murders. That I don't know. I, for some reason, was of the opinion, like, I knew he had groupies because people are fucking psycho. Yeah. No. Podcast doesn't really go into anything, like, post-trial. Like, after he's convicted, it's basically like, and we're dead. (laughs) All right. I want to look it up just because I'm curious because I feel like I know something. Okay. Uh. Charles Manson's fiance wants to marry him for his corpse. This is the shit I saw in 2015. Afton Elaine Burton. Manson's engagement to a woman, 53 years his junior. I remember this. 53 years his junior was part of a wild scheme of hers to profit by putting his body on public display after his death. So she wanted to marry him to be able to claim his body once he was dead to make money off of putting it on to display. She was 27. There are all kinds of kinds, man. She's pretty. I'm not going to lie. She's very set. You can tell she styles herself after the 70s because she has a part down the middle, and that's really, like... The 70s and the 90s was really the last time anyone started doing that until now. I've decided Mm -hmm. that every 20 years that we're just going to recycle 70s fashion because that seems to be what the fuck's happening. Which I'm fine (laughs) with, personally. I mean, the 70s had some cute shit, so, like, whatever. Like, I got some... belong in jail, but their fashion doesn't. Yeah, the 70s belong in jail, but, like, boy, they had some good fashion. Yeah, Manson's fiance, 27-year-old. Afton Elaine Burton, known as Star. She went by the name Star. Of course she did. Burton and a pal, Craig Hammond, planned to lay out Manson's remains in a glass crypt, and the pair figured their bizarre California version of Lennon's tomb would draw huge crowds and make big money, which they are not wrong, my guy. But Manson, at 80, decided he didn't want to marry her. He's finally realized that he's been played for a fool and she's not actually in love with him. Uh, but another reason he decided to not go for it, he believes he's immortal so that it's impossible for this plan to work. So he feels that he's just never actually going to die and that this idea is stupid to begin with because, like, how are you going to put a body on display if there's never a body? Oh, uh, flash forward to 2017. <laughs> but I definitely recommend that that podcast. And then now that you know this information, please go watch Once Upon a Time in Hollywood by Quentin Tarantino. Because I everybody that I show that movie, they don't get it. And the thing is, you're not going to get it unless you know the story of Charles Manson. I listened to this podcast and then very shortly after that movie came out. And I followed along with everything like, holy shit. It's very similar to Inglorious Bastards in that sense because it's, it's like fake history events but it's his own kind of fictional take on real events and Sharon Tate is in it Jay Sebring is in it Roman Polanski is in it like well like actors portraying them Margot Robbie is Sharon Tate okay. it's just really fucking good if you know what's going on 
I feel like I have to sit down and explain the story to people before I show anybody that movie because the people that I show are just like, I I don't get it. <laughs> uh, and then like, oh, if I had known this. Yeah. It it's interesting because that movie was not even remotely advertised um, in that way, in my opinion. The only reason I knew about it was because I saw an article that was literally just like once upon a time is a story about Charles Manson's Hollywood. And I was like, oh, shit. They should have definitely talked about Manson more so that people knew what to expect. I feel like with part of what made Inglorious Bastards like just as famous as it was at the time that it came out is that nobody has any confusion about what happened during World War II and the Nazis. Yeah. You see a Nazi, you know what's up. Yeah. Right? Even if it's fictionalized, you know what's up. That is just not the case for Charles Manson. And maybe when they made the film, they thought it was. But it's just not. And I think it was. It was probably a huge thing in Quentin Tarantino's life because he grew up in, or he was in California when all this shit happened. Oh, yeah. Especially uh, with how violent his movies are. Yeah. So I think for him, he was just like, oh, yeah, everybody knows this story. But I mean, I think to anybody who is watching it, who sees a bunch of hippies on a ranch, they're just like, oh, it's just hippies on a ranch. There's no way for people to know, like, oh, no, that is the Death Valley Ranch. Right. Where Charles Manson's cult was inhabiting. You would so. have to be a creepy person like us who knows too much about murder and cults in order to really pick that up. Because it is true. When you think of the 60s and 70s, it's just like free love, hippies, like everyone's naked doing hallucinogens. Like that's just what that time, one of the many things that time period is known for. There's no way to be like, oh, yeah, that's that's. All of that is Manson. Like, I'm, like no, all of that is the 70s. I'm also so. sure there were probably other farms that we don't know about where, like, that was a thing. They just didn't happen to murder Sharon Tate. Thank you guys so much for listening. Um, hopefully I can try to safely film people to finish that episode I filmed with Hunter about her story about the Blackburn cult which is just honestly such a great fucking story. And it should be just as famous as any other cult story. And I'm convinced it's not because the cult leader was a woman. Mm-hmm. But it's a buck wild story. Not going oh, to lie. Was, I was very shocked about it. So I really just want this. I want to get this episode out for everybody because I just kind of want everyone to know what the fuck this story is because it's so good. Yes, but thank you guys so much, and keep it creepy. We'll see you guys next week. Keep it creepy. Bye. Music by freestockmusic.com. For blog posts showing visuals for each episode, you can find our blog at cotmpodcast.com. If you'd like to help support us and receive discounts and loyalty rewards, become a patron at patreon.com slash macabre. We record every episode live Wednesdays at 9 p.m. Eastern Standard Time on twitch.tv slash thetigerwizard. If you can't find us on your favorite podcast app or site, please let us know and we'll fix that. Be sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram for updates on episodes, blog posts, and special events. And don't forget, keep it creepy.